Welcome to the Altruistic Libertarian, advocate for a genuinely free society. I'm Anthony Wheeler, and today we complete our case study of AT&T. The corporate conditions we reviewed in the last episode were a direct and historical result of the bloated company AT&T had become. In a genuinely free society, no such entities would have arisen. Without the monopoly supported by the protective shield of government regulation, the telecommunications industry would have evolved far more dynamically and effectively. The beginning of a more dynamic and creative telecom industry can be seen to emerge after the passing of the 1996 Telecom Act. But not in AT&T. As part of AT&T's newest business unit, one charged with entering the local telecom market, I witnessed firsthand the ineffectiveness and inability of the organization to create a new business. Beginning with management's debilitating hubris, including a tremendous underestimation of the complexities of local telephone service, along with a multiple layer management structure the size and shape of a wedding cake, covered with the frosting of political infighting and age-old bureaucratic traditions, the division shuffled and shivered for over two years without deploying anything. When I spoke with senior executives early in the program, I learned that they expected to easily penetrate the market and overwhelm anyone else in it. They assumed that because they had been the same company a mere 12 years earlier and retained Bell Labs in the equipment manufacturer, they had the organizational and technical wherewithal to enter the market with relative ease. How difficult could it be? For the first year, I served on various product teams to develop offerings for the new division. The magnitude of our collective ignorance was, in hindsight, staggering. We knew nothing of E911, or directory services, or voicemail, or call waiting, or how the local central office was even wired. I learned about main distribution frames for the first time, along with everyone else in the room. My responsibility was design provisioning and maintenance processes for local services. After a few months learning what I could, I locked myself in my basement for a week and developed the process documents. The results were included in AT&T's model contract, a document provided to the different regions that were negotiating with the RBOX. I was amused to find that my process documentation ended up in MCI's model contract in precisely the same form, including my unique document identifiers. Years later, when I worked in ELEC, that's a local exchange carrier, I discovered how ridiculously awful my process documents were. At AT&T, I didn't know a damn thing about local telephone service. The new law required the RBOX to resell portions of their local networks to other providers, known as CLECs, competitive local exchange carriers. These were called unbundled network elements and included local loops, the copper wire between the local serving office and the residence, and switch ports. The RBOC was required to allow other carriers to co-locate in their equipment buildings and provide those com competitive carriers with access to the RBOC switch and local loops. Another option was to resell the entire service by paying the RBOC a wholesale rate and then charging the end user something higher. Ordering any of these options required a new form called an LSR, a local service request. I drafted the first version of this form while still in New Jersey. One of the product teams I supported was Centrex. This service was provided by creating a virtual PBX in the local switch. Instead of installing a physical PBX on site, Centrex allowed the customer to enjoy all the features and advantages of a PBX without the attendant costs. 
The local switch was partitioned, and each station at the customer site was programmed with the numbers and features the customer wanted. For a large uh, Centrex customer, there might be tens of thousands of variables during provisioning, and in the end, we could not figure out how to get existing AT&T ordering systems to accept the necessary data, let alone downstream inventory databases and billing systems. After turning in the requirements document, some six, six months in the making, it was estimated that it would take another two years to deploy the initial version of the systems needed to support the deployment of Centrex. We worked hard in the product teams to develop the marketing process and system requirements for an array of local services. All too often, after developing an intricate solution of one sort or another, management at higher levels, people without the context or technical understanding, changed something, forcing the team to rework the entire solution. Given that we were generally incompetent to begin with, we suffered additional incompetence that made our effort that much more ineffective. After a year of working on the product teams, I transferred to one of the regions, where I supported the AT&T team working alongside MCI and Sprint in an effort to get the RBOC to support our entry into their business. A year later, late 1997, we hadn't issued any LSRs in the region or acquired one new local customer despite full support from the regulatory bodies. Just meeting after meeting after meeting. The RBOC did a nice job delaying the process, although it wasn't that difficult given AT&T's approach to the negotiations. While the RBOC could not enter the long-distance business until a number of strict milestones had been met, there was no restrictions on the, the long-distance companies or any other company from entering the local arena. The RBOC was required by law to support these competitors by unbundling their network and or reselling their service. AT&T signaled their failure with the decision to base their local strategy entirely on resale. Originally, they had planned to build their own network and would use unbundled network elements as, and resale as a stepping stone to full market entry. This was a strategy Sprint used to enter the long-distance market in, back in the late 80s, and it was the only viable strategy for AT&T. Simply reselling local service was a non-starter, as they would forever be beholden to the local provider for network quality, maintenance, and provisioning with very small financial margins. Once this decision was made, I made mine, and left AT&T shortly thereafter, certain that it was only a matter of time before the former commercial giant would cease to exist. In January of 1998, AT&T purchased TCG for $11.3 billion to serve as their local company and closed the local division with a total loss of over $2 billion. Ironically, when SBC purchased AT&T some seven years later, they only paid a little over $16 billion for the entire company. The RBOX always had a tremendous advantage over the long-distance carriers. They owned all the local access, including copper and fiber. Intercity infrastructure for the long-distance carriers was, e was always easier and cheaper to develop whereas the local infrastructure, the more costly and difficult to replicate. Once gaining permission, the RBOX could provide long-distance services much cheaper than the incumbents. Even so, the old RBOX and the companies derived from them faced many of the same cultural, technical, and organizational challenges as AT&T. They have more time, however, and began with a solid customer and network base, providing genuine opportunities. 
The major players, SBC and Verizon for instance, have invested heavily in the growing cell phone business and compete with cable companies using fiber networks in the broadband market. This case study provides several key points related to government intervention and the ensuing consequences. 1. Monopolies only exist with government complicity. To maintain a monopoly of any significance, the organization requires regulations that prohibit private entities from entering the same market. 2. The drastic measures that I witnessed at AT&T to become competitive never would have occurred prior to divestiture, 1984. Because in the old AT&T, prices were regulated and assured, employment was permanent, and customers were held captive. The company was never threatened by competition or financial stress. 3. During the monopolistic decades, technology changed slowly, in part based on the regulatory climate. It's quite possible that had the government retained regulatory control of the industry and continued to support the AT&T monopoly, the internet as we know it would never come to exist. Under the monopoly, the industry was so conservative and so powerful that any threat to its cash, cash cow, that is residential long distance, would likely be quashed. For example, as a network executive in Jamaica during the early 2000s, I witnessed such defensive behavior as efforts were made to shut down anything that allowed Jamaicans to call off-island through private networks or using internet phones. The phone company in Jamaica was still a monopoly at that time and margins in international calling immense, triggering the attempt to stop illegal calling. In another example, as the VP of, of Network Engineering and Operations in Texas in 2003, we determined that carrying voice traffic over our data network and completing that traffic into the local switch using data T1s, thereby avoiding access charges, was possibly illegal, so we quit doing it. You can be sure that powerful telecom companies that depend on access charges would have snuffed out such practices in, a, in the monopolistic past. The only reason we got away with it so long is that at the time the monopoly had been broken and local service subject to competitive forces. 4. The effects of removing obstacles to entering the telecom market were immediate and dramatic, both after 1984, when other carriers were allowed to enter the long distance market, and especially after the Telecom Act of 1996. We owe today's plethora of communications options on the government on the government's releasing most of its regulatory control in the industry. Note, not all the country is free of telecommunications regulation and limitation. In my small hometown in New York, the local company still owns a monopoly on local telephone service. They won't port their, their phone numbers to other carriers, and no other company can offer local, local telephone service, even the cable company that already has the technical means to do so. Five. The experience with AT&T demonstrated how difficult it is to effectively manage large, complex organizations within a complex industry. Without a structure that ensured decisions were made by those most capable of making them, and attempting to guide a multi-layered organization from senior levels, with executives largely insulated from the customers and the frontline technicians, the company failed to develop and deploy products and services that consumers desired at prices competitive with other providers. Extending this example to consider an entire economy, as socialists would do, would magnify the challenge by several magnitudes. Thousands of business entities within a multitude of industries spread out across an entire continent. 
The difficulties, of effect, the difficulties of effectively managing an entire economy exceed the competency of any group or system. The only way to make the most of what an economy has to offer is through dispersed authority, ownership, and tens of millions of individual decision makers, each with particular expertise, personal motivation, and local knowledge. 6. Had the regulations never existed and the industry allowed to evolve through the 20th century in a competitive way, it's impossible to predict how much cheaper, efficient, or technologically creative telecommunications might, telecommunications might have been. What we do know, based on what has happened since controls have been removed, how much better we would have been served had the controls been removed sooner or had they never existed at all. 7. AT&T was a perfect example of what can take place in a genuinely free society. Private companies can cease to exist as independent commercial entities. This can happen for any number of reasons. Bad luck, poor strategy, te technology changes, ineffective organizations, or complacency. Whatever the root cause, private companies cease to exist when they lose too much money over a period of time by ineffectively serving a market of consumers free to choose, to the point where they can no longer sustain operations. Ultimately, in a free society, consumers decide who wins, who survives, and who fades away. Quote, Laissez-faire does not mean, let soulless mechanical forces operate. It means, let each individual choose how he wants to cooperate in the social division of labor. Let the consumers deter determine what the entrepreneurs should produce. Unquote. AT&T is not alone among the vanquished. Consider the following former corporate giants that no longer exist, although not necessarily due to government intervention. Eastern Airlines. Eastern began, began as, a small, as a mail carrier for the U.S. Postal Service in the mid-1920s, but through acquisition and expansion came to dominate much of the domestic travel industry along the profitable East Coast corridor in the, in the 1950s. The airline thrived into the 1970s when it was one of the big four major U.S. airlines. However, the carrier struggled after the Air Transportation Deregulation Act of 1978. Deteriorating labor relations forced it into bankruptcy in 1989, at the time the largest airline bankruptcy in U.S. history. It ceased operations in 1991. Enron. Has there ever been a company that had such a spectacular rise and fall as this Houston-based energy company? Enron had 22,000 employees and claimed revenues of $111 billion in 2000 before its massive accounting fraud came to light. It is now the symbol of corporate fraud and corruption, and its 2001 bankruptcy is the largest in U.S. history. MCI WorldCom Starting as a long-distance discount service, services in 1983, it changed its name to WorldCom in 1995. A series of mega-mergers transformed the company. It was rechristened MCI WorldCom in 1998. Then the telecom industry started a prolonged downturn. Management resorted to accounting tricks to try to keep the stock afloat. By 2002, an elaborate accounting fraud was revealed. In bankruptcy, it changed its name back to MCI. In 2006, MCI purchased, Verizon purchased MCI, and most of its operations became what is now called Verizon Business. Compact. Once upon a time, there was a computer brand called Compaq. It was one of the largest sellers of PCs in the entire world in the 1980s and 1990s. Then in 2002, Hewlett-Packard merges with the company, marking the end for Compaq, existing in mere 20 years. 
Pan Am, Borders, Circuit City, Polaroid, Blockbuster Video, and Tower Records also no longer exist. Joseph Schumpeter called such corporate failure creative destruction, as every corporate failure in a free market represents opportunity and growth for others. This in stark contrast to government institutions that continue to exist and operate regardless of poor efficiency, inferior value, lack of customer and or client approval, old technology, or lost purpose. United States Post Office serves as a good example as a commercial entity with ever-increasing prices, cost of stamps, that requires annual subsidies from taxpayers to remain in existence. Another example would be public schools, including universities, that are so ineffective that many taxpayers opt to send their children to private institutions despite the fact they are already paying through taxes for the local school or state university. AT&T is just one example of how government intervention can distort an industry and hinder the development of preferable alternatives. The government-supported monopoly perpetuated high telephone costs to consumers and retarded technological innovation in the industry. The world would have been better off had the government just left well enough, well enough alone. Well, that concludes our show for today and our case study of AT&T. In the next episode, we catch up on a miscellany of topics. Until then... Peace.